Welcome to Talking Poverty, the Poverty Free Action Team's podcast, taking a critical look at poverty-related issues in British Columbia. On this episode, we've assembled a special panel comprised of healthcare providers, healthcare researchers, and healthcare activists to discuss the critical relationship between health and poverty. We're pleased to have with us today Terry Hendrickson, a coordinator with the BC Health Coalition, Dr. Amy Lubeck, an environmental health knowledge translator with the BC Centre for Disease Control and a volunteer with the Public Health Association of British Columbia, and Dr. Carissa Patricelli, a family doctor whose practice is involved working with marginalized women and children. She is also a member of First Call BC. Before we start, Talking Poverty and the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition would like to recognize that the planning and recording of this podcast has taken place on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples of BC. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. So, welcome and thank you all for taking the time to be here. We're so glad you're here. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having us. And we're your hosts. My name is Elle Denise. And I'm Suzanne Merchant. So I wanted to start this discussion off on a personal note. You each have an interest in poverty and you each have an interest in health and health care. What were the experiences that led each of you to realize that poverty is a health care issue? Um, yeah, so I work with the BC Health Coalition now, um, but social justice has always been important to me, and I actually worked in anti-poverty for a number of years in Vancouver in the, in the mid-90s. And healthcare is the foundation of the rights that people need to, to have and everyone needs to have access to, and we're, you know, we're losing that access. Um, and that's really where the issue of um, equity and equality and access um, really crosses over with, with poverty. Absolutely. So for you, the interest in healthcare is also about social justice, as in every citizen deserves the same level of healthcare? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, Terry. So Amy, what about you? What got you started? I feel like I've done a bit of a loop to get to where I am. I started out in cancer research, but very soon realized that I wanted to get into policy and make a more upstream difference. I actually went to a first call fundraiser, and Dr. Ryan Miley, who is the founder of Upstream Health in, I love everyone's nodding, they're like, yes, he's a rock star. Um, He's a familiar name for sure. And uh, he gave us this wonderful presentation about um, children being thrown into a river and everyone is jumping in to, to save them and, and pulling them out so quickly and they, they can't do it fast enough and they keep saving the kids but they don't have enough time to think who's throwing the kids in the river in the first place and that's the idea of upstream health going up and getting the kids before they're in the river keeping people healthy before and that just was a huge aha moment for me and I started looking to get into more public health and particularly for me, environmental health. So for you, you kind of see a solution. You see the way to approach the problem and you kind of want to take part in that. I'd, I hope so. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Carissa, what about you? Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here because it's very close to my heart. I. Um, I think the the issues around poverty and people's access to basic human rights um, is really what's what's on the line, and I and I'm very passionate about it because I believe that we're really failing um, the most marginalized of our society in many many ways, and um, it it makes work really sad when um, I would you know I would argue Amy that for some people their health is determined by. 99% of their social determinants um, mm. because they cannot access health care without housing, without food. Um, totally. And so I would say it's, it, it's part of uh, daily work to see people who can't get food for their kids, who uh, lose their children to um, the child welfare system because they do not have adequate housing. 
So that's why I'm really interested to be involved with the first call and to learn more about what we can do at a policy level because um, right. it has a huge, huge impact on our families, the children, the women, mm -hmm. and, and um, just the basic life stuff that we take for yeah. granted, you know, oh, like having sure. a baby should be a joyful time. Mm -hmm. And if you can't take your baby home because you don't have anywhere to live, um, oh, it God. becomes like the worst time of your life, you know, and, and that's a part of people's lives that, that I'm involved with. Um, um, day to day, and uh, and so that's why I'm here. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, that's really great. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here with with very intelligent people who have dedicated their careers to bettering our society. So thank you very much for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really nice to have a panel of women and seeing women especially involved in in making the world a better place. I mean, even if there was even if there had been like a man on this panel it wouldn't have made it any less special but just, <laughs> just you know it's it's nice to see women at the forefront we wanted to open up this conversation now that we've got a little bit of background with each of you just to kind of broadly speak in your experiences and in your kind of professional careers what you see is the most important social determinants that factor into health when i was doing anti-poverty work one of the uh, most interesting bits of uh, stats that I thought was fascinating was that um, income inequality affects the health of everybody mm -hmm. in that society, Absolutely. not just the poor. Totally. In income inequality is something that the, the Public Health Association of BC has really been focusing on, and income redistribution is one of the things that we suggested in our recent submission to the Federal Poverty Reduction Strategy. But that inequality piece, the reason that was suggested in one of the articles that I was reading was that when there's so much um, inequality, you lose social cohesion. So people don't mm -hmm. trust each other. So there's so much more stress and, and depression and, and less like, friendliness. And the more um, equity there is, the, the more people feel like they're all in it together. Right, so so having more equitable societies, from what you're saying, means that we have social groups that are more connected, more engaged with one another. Yeah, um, thanks, this is Carissa. Just touching on what Amy said, um, in terms of uh, stress and, and cortisol levels, I think uh, that if you, if you look after people's basic needs, you know, make sure all kids can go to daycare uh, so that people can, can access work and income and, and pay rent and ha have a place to live. Um, if we can make sure that everyone can get prescriptions that they need. You know, mm -hmm. um, these are all kind of policy things that level the playing field. And it doesn't say I'm taking your income and, and uh, giving it to someone else for a different type of job. It says we're going to look after people's basic human rights, which are children deserve an education, children deserve a safe place to learn, they all deserve early childhood education, all children deserve to eat, all children deserve to be able to access uh, food, um, all children you know, deserve to be able to live in, in housing that is safe and, mm -hmm. and that doesn't have mice running on the floor, that, that they don't have to wait for, for housing lists for, for years and years. And so um, to me that's what, what income distribution is, is just looking at the social welfare of the society and having a basic minimum that, mm -hmm. that everyone can access. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Carissa, continuing with this line of thought, um, we know that you work in particular with marginalized women and children. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you have any experiences that you could share with us regarding some of these social economic factors that lead to poor health care, that lead to poor health? Yeah, so, I, you know, I spent um, seven or eight years working with the street youth mm -hmm. um, uh, who live under the bridges in Vancouver primarily, well, but all over the place in Vancouver. Many have come from all over Canada because it's warm here. Yes. And people are friendly. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, Victoria is very similar. So we have a, a huge population of very young people who are homeless and who uh, do not access adequate food. You know, they... Uh, would come into the clinic for one meal a day um, to have a locker to store some of their precious things or um, personal effects that they didn't want to get stolen when they were out and about. 
and we had a clinic there where they could, um, uh, you know, see the, the physician without ID, you know, without identification. They didn't have to have a BC Care card. They didn't have to have paid um, their MSP and so on. It was open for all comers, and, and um, uh, you know, a lot of them have just never been given a chance. They've uh, grown up in multiple foster homes, and they haven't had that emotional connection. And so when you talk about distrust and mm -hmm. cortisol levels and stress, for the, to be able to say, oh, I'm going to give you this antibiotic for your infection to get better, well, it's probably going to help. But the mm -hmm. fact that they're sleeping outside and don't have adequate food um, and all of the other pieces of it um, mean that their health is very precarious. And uh, so in your experience, would you say that poverty and poor health can be a transgenerational issue? As in, do, do poor mothers, how do their, how do their children get affected mm -hmm. and does that continue on? Yeah, and I think I mean, that's a huge question because um, the, my my answer would be, of course, mm, <laughs> of course it absolutely. does. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, because you're you're living under a set chronic stress, chronic high cortisol levels, and so for people to be just happy or be silly or learn how to ride a bike or do normal stuff like that, it's very difficult because uh, your mother may be living, or you know, your father. There's single fathers out there too, but. Um, your mother might be living under uh, so much stress in terms of the landlord hasn't fixed the door so the door doesn't lock. So, you know, some, she, she's worried someone could come in during the night or um, she doesn't have food to send with you adequately to school so people bully you. You know, it, it, the, the level of stress and the perpetuation of mental health, um, we really keep people down. Once they're down, we, we really keep them down. We don't want to help lift them up. And, and our welfare system does not do that. It does not provide adequate food. It does not provide adequate shelter. It does not um, help people look after their families. And, you know, the families that I work with, they want to. You know, they love their children, and they just need support. And the support mm -hmm. can look many different ways, and they usually know what they need. But getting that is incredibly difficult. And it's always trying to juggle what can you, uh, what can you afford that day, or what, uh, what uh, piece of the puzzle are you going to try to fix that day? So we've been getting more and more calls at the office from people who are um, having problems within the healthcare system, or are you know are in desperate straits for whatever reason. And I got this call from this gentleman who had had, um, so he had been, he was a worker. I, he didn't say what he, where he worked, but he had had a number of strokes. Mm -hmm. And so he could no longer work. Right. And so he was saying, so what do I do now? And so I was saying, well, what, like, what do you mean? Because we're the health coalition. So, and he said, well, how do I, how do I feed myself? And um, I thought, oh, how, how do you feed yourself, you know, now that, because you have this, and I said, you know, didn't the hospital give you a social worker? Like, don't you have somebody to talk to? And he was just sent home. And um, so, you know, I suggested some places for him to call because we don't have any advocates on staff. But um, then I started looking at the um, income assistant welfare page on the government side to see, well, where would I even send him? And as I was reading it, I was going, I don't want to send him there. Absolutely. Like he yeah. just had strokes and like the stress of having to follow like all these hoops and mm -hmm. like I just I just felt wretched. Um yeah. and on he, his own. And all, yeah. yeah. And then and then even even if he like he didn't even know to apply for um disability. That yeah. wasn't even a thought in his head and like you said his healthcare providers didn't assist that bridging between social nets, those things that are supposed to help people in crises like that. And continuing along with mental health that Carissa had mentioned, and Amy, I believe I read something in when I was researching a bit about what you do, in that poverty can shape a child's mental health on a genetic level. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping maybe we could delve into that a little bit. For sure, and I was actually thinking of that when, when Carissa was, was talking. Things like trauma and poverty um, they, they actually do have a, 
an effect on on a, on a child's genes, not on like a mutation level, but there's things called epigenetics, which is almost like the, the faucet that sits on top of a tap, if you want to think of the gene as a tap, and that kind of turns the gene on and off. And when you're living in very stressful situations like poverty, and often there's, there's trauma that goes along with that, that can shut off some genes, including some that process serotonin, which is kind of like your, your feel-good hormone, right? And those kids are much more likely to get depression, anxiety, wow. and all those type of things. And when you are living in a situation where you're fairly deprived, things like being exposed to cigarette smoke or having lack of adequate food, that kind of makes the problem even worse. It's, it's, it's a real shame because we have the resources, we have the capability, we have the knowledge to implement the, these important programs, and we don't. And so that, that, and to a certain level, it speaks to some of the political and even the social will of, mm. our, of our society. So could you touch a little bit about the state of our current political will? I know we've just experienced a recent change in government. So perhaps you can touch on what changes you're hoping to see with this new NDP Green Coalition that, that we may have. Well, from, from my point of view, to, to jump on, I was extremely excited to see that there is a ministerial position that includes poverty reduction and having an actual poverty reduction strategy, because that's something that advocates have been fighting for, for at least 10, 16 years, to actually have a poverty reduction strategy. We are the last province not to have one. And as Terry was saying, I think we do have the highest amount of inequity in wow. our country, the mm -hmm. difference between the top 10% and the bottom 10%. I think that's the biggest in BC. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm extremely excited about, about that. And to have a Ministry of, of Mental Health and Addictions to, you know, get involved with, with that. Opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. These are things that we can do if we have the political will. I, I would agree. I think it doesn't take a whole lot in terms of dollars to make a huge difference. And that's the thing. And then the whole health of the whole province goes up. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole society. Because you have kids that are happy, that are going to school, that aren't uh, missing school. You have uh, families that can go out and, and uh, feel uh, pride in their day, that they're being able to accomplish things that they want to instead of um, the repetitive shaming, shaming, shaming. And mm -hmm. I really feel that a lot of it is the, the trickle-down of the colonialism um, oh. in the country, mm -hmm. that we continue to have this elitist kind of attitude of, like, well, go get a job. Mm -hmm. And Isn't it um, amazing how often you still hear that? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's a you cannot get a job if you don't have someone to look after your, ch your children. You cannot ha get a job if you can't have a shower. And these are the things, and these are real things. You know, people mm -hmm. tell me, okay, well, I, I'm, I, they'll come in and apologize for their, that their clothes are dirty because they didn't get the laundry soap because they, you know, had, their child had a birthday party to go to and they, they really wanted to be able to send them with a gift. So right. these are things that yeah. we take for granted every day. And, and the shaming, the shaming is, is such a huge, huge factor in people's mental health and their yeah. ability to function in society, right? Well, and even if they do, this is Terry, so even if they do have a job, um, it's so expensive to live here mm -hmm. that, you know, one job isn't enough. Never mind the childcare piece, but the, the housing piece and the transportation piece. And, you know, so that leads to needing a living wage, which, you know, mm -hmm. you had mentioned about basic income, mm -hmm. um, which I've been doing more reading on because I've been hearing pros and cons about it and trying to figure out, you know, mm -hmm as a policy, um, what what makes the most sense? Like what would be the most helpful to people? Um, like where do we make need to make the changes that will make all the difference? Um, mm -hmm. And of course it's, it's all of it. And I would say, you know, after 16 years of a government that was more interested in, you know, uh, you know I'll say it, in the capitalist system, where um, you know the to give more money to the rich 
and not distribute the wealth and the services and the needs um, throughout. Um, it, like every, every department is desperate. I mean, I was in Victoria yesterday talking to various of the new ministers and it was like, oh, transportation, oh my goodness, there's so much to do. Oh my goodness, social development, like there's just like, you know, we haven't had a welfare increase in 10 years and oh, child care and oh, health care and mental. And it was just like, mm. like, I don't know how they're going to do it. But um, mm. I would say that there's many parts of um, BC society that's at a breaking point And mm -hmm. hopefully this will be the, the change that will help everyone. And if we could touch on that, um, like linking to this thought that there's a lot of different parts of BC that are in crises right now. Um, you mentioned earlier the opioid crisis, um, which is a, a, a huge strain on, on the province, um, both economic and, and moral, moral strain. People are mm -hmm. feeling this deeply. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could maybe chat a little bit about um, what public health policies have perhaps exasperated this situation and the strain it puts on our healthcare system and how it could be circumvented. Do you have any thoughts on that, Carissa? Just because of you, you do work in a methadone clinic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a it's such mm. a huge thing right now. It's um, devastating. It's devastating to um, to all of our communities. Absolutely. Because, uh, people are losing children and sisters, and um, it certainly wasn't as common. You know, a couple of years ago, the rates of overdose have just gone through, right through the roof. And um, yet people have suffered so much trauma that even though they just lost their friend to an overdose, they will still inject. Um, Self-medication. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very sad. And I think a lot of it has to do with just supporting people socially. So mm -hmm. uh, people are stuck. They have nowhere to live. And so you just get into this cycle of shame and mm -hmm. sadness and owing people and all of that. And mm -hmm. so the social system could do far, far more. You know, mm -hmm. we, we can pour lots of money into the, the um, um, Narcan and, and the immediate, how do you reverse it? But you got to look upstream. Absolutely. Why are people there? And, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, we've right. really failed. We've really mm -hmm. failed. Um, yeah, right now it's quite reactionary. Yeah. When the opioid crisis was, was really peaking and they started covering the methadone and the suboxone on the um, psychiatric drug list, mm -hmm. um, which the government, you've been able to get special authority there. Previously it didn't include the methadone and suboxone. So once, once that was included, that was great, but it didn't include people who were underage. So I had a 17-year-old oh, oh, who's wow. pregnant, who's using heroin, who we couldn't, you know, it was a big battle to get her uh, covered for um, prescribing methadone to her. And it was oh. really necessary because she needed to stabilize mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, just like if she needed insulin for diabetes or something else, yeah. uh, you know, we'd make sure that it was, it, it was provided. And so there's so many parts of the, the, um, mm -hmm. the prescription drugs that, that uh, we really could address and, and give universal coverage, especially for all children. Definitely. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, Go no, ahead. I was, I was going to say um, a national drug, drug plan has been definitely working its way up in policy discussions um, around how important um, it would be to have pharmacare across the country. Mm -hmm. And not only important for all of these reasons and for all the seniors that can't afford yeah. Um, to take their medication and all the rest of it, but um, it would save the healthcare system tons of money because mm -hmm. then people would be taking their medications, um, people would be stabilized um, on, you know, for issue, situations like methadone, um, and it, again, it's it's just you know Canada is the only country that has uni so-called universal health care that does not cover. Uh, prescription drugs and it's uh, you it was supposed to it was supposed to add them on but um, you know the cost was too much um, mm. and then we moved towards you know this whole private insurance through employers which 
you know, and people say, well, you can get it, you know, through your job, but I think it's only something, mm -hmm. what, like 30% of people not, actually get it through their job? No, it's not all that much. And we're, yeah. um, we're moving toward a society where we're seeing more and more precarious jobs that don't even have that benefit mm -hmm. along with it. Um, actually, the Canadian diet is interesting you brought up uh, insulin because the Canadian Diabetes Association is one of the biggest proponents of having a national pharmacare strategy because so many people aren't taking their medication or aren't taking their medication properly because they just can't afford it. So they're like, I know I'm not doing this properly, but I'm just going to take like half my insulin now and half of it later and not with the right syringe because that one's more expensive than this one. And it's, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, just to add on to, um, as well, like a lot of the mental health uh, prescriptions that are necessary are not covered. And again, like you said, for, for children as well, it, I think in Ontario, they've just started a pilot program to cover like kids under or young people under 25 or something to that effect, but apparently it doesn't cover all the things that it needs. It's going in the right direction, but it's not. It's not quite there yet. Um, but some of the, some of these issues, like when we go back to talking about um, talking about the opioid crisis um, and people needing stabilization and needing medications and. Um, Dr. Gabor Mate was one of the uh, kind of frontline workers for quite a while, and he was talking about how opioids are, are painkillers, but they also target like the psychological pain as well, and that goes mm -hmm. along with trauma. Amy, your work and activism are, are heavily related to seeking environmental justice, and I want to I want to take some time to address some of these issues. Um, I I know that. For example, large infrastructural projects at the Site C Dam are of concern to you. So how did these large-scale projects and these policies affect mm -hmm. people who, who are struggling with poverty? So this is going to be a very long answer, because <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that, um, that come up. Um, the, the first thing is probably the, the easiest thing that's been on my mind lately uh, to, to process. I was at a town hall meeting before the election on the environment and all the candidates were there and they asked questions about what's your biggest environmental issue and there was a one of our MLAs she said you know this is great and we care about the environment and we all need a healthy environment but when people are just trying to feed their kids and make sure that they have shoes and make sure that they have clothes and you know, be able to afford to get them to school. They can't make the same decisions about like environmentally sustainable pro products. Like you, if, if you really want to be more environmentally sustainable, you want to buy less stuff, you want to buy a long lasting, say, pair of shoes or a long lasting coat. But if you're making less than living wage, you're going to be buying the cheapest thing you can at Walmart, and it's going to fall apart. Like, I think that's something Bernie Sanders said. It's extremely expensive to be poor in the long run because you end up buying more stuff, but you can't afford to invest. And I also found it very interesting that uh, it wasn't the Poverty Direction Coalition, but it was a group of uh, poverty advocates, I believe, that spoke out against the Site C Dam because it was going to increase the rates for BC Hydro, and a lot of people who are marginalized and living on the poverty line, that little bit of a kick in hydro is going to be huge. And yeah, that, that talks about, again, in income inequality. At the same time, in that area, you know, you have um, a lot of First Nations and uh, Indigenous people living in that area. That's their traditional homeland. Um, and that's going to be flooded. Their sacred sites are going to be mm -hmm. flooded. And those are folks, you know, who often in our society, we talked about colonialism earlier, um, we have generations of reconciliation to do and flooding the farmland, uh, flooding the farmland and flooding like the traditional territory of, of folks up there. That's the exact opposite of reconciliation. And that 
And we've seen studies, I always come back to the studies, that uh, nations that have their own governance, that have control over their own lands, those folks, because you have control and agency of your, um, and that's with everybody too, if, when you feel like you have control over your life, you, you're healthier and you do better, and societies do better. So there's less hopelessness. Um, so, I guess I can get really going off on these things, but when we look at these huge infrastructure projects, we really need to be looking at what the impacts are of everybody on the ground. Um, um, so when we go back to um, thinking about health and inequality, you've got oftentimes people who, are, who have been living in poverty or living in um, circumstances that aren't, aren't favorable. And then you have the offer of, say, jobs and the offer of some monies from some of these resources. And it's like, you're screwing up our land. It's potentially really bad for our health. But at the same time, my kids have to eat. And they need a roof over their heads. So how do you make that decision? And that decision is often forced on those folks. And so there's that big, as you said, social justice, environmental justice, um, poverty reduction, and trauma that all roll into a giant ball when we get into this mess. Mm -hmm. And it's just constantly, and it's just constantly, and it just constantly keeps piling on. It doesn't really end. It's just one. It's just one little thing on top of another, like you said, being able to take transport, being able to access medicines, being able to even have the time to take the medicines or even remember. Mm. Sometimes people just forget. And I guess one of my questions for you all would be, does it require more money necessarily than more organization? Because one of the things that I always keep thinking about is that we often hear conversations about how can we tackle issues like this when we fundamentally don't have enough resources? Do we have enough money to tackle these and uh, to tackle these problems? And is it more of a question of organization? I can. This is Terry. So I mean, there's two parts to that question. Mm -hmm. Well, there's probably three million parts to that question. <laughs> yeah. but the two parts that I'm gonna talk about is one: Do we have the money? Um, and I, that goes back to we have choice. Governments have choice mm -hmm. on how they collect revenues to pay for services um, and how they spend the money that they collect. So um, Site C Dam is going to cost billions of dollars mm -hmm. that will never be recouped um, for an LNG industry that we don't know um, given what's happening in the world, if anything's going to come of it. Um, and we won't get into all of the policies about how much the provinces is going to get from resource extraction and whatnot. But we're talking about the government's going to outlay billions of dollars to build Site C Dam that we don't know that we need. Those billions of dollars, is, if we didn't build Site C Dam, is there to be used for other things. So I would say, yes, there are resources um, in, that government has access to that could be used for other programs. So it's not like you have to take from education to give to health care. It's like you have to take from subsidizing um, the oil industry to give to social programs. You know, there's other ways mm -hmm. of looking at it. Um, but the second part of it is, yes, it's definitely reorganization. So if you look at the healthcare system, which is very complex, so, <clears throat> but, um, so we have long wait times for various surgeries. And, um, but part of the reasons why we have long wait times for surgeries are because we have seniors who can't get home support because the programs were cut so they're stuck in hospital beds, so they have to cancel surgeries because they don't have a bed for somebody to go into. So they cancel the surgery so, that, so they have to wait. Um, so if you reorganize the system where you take a senior who's in a, um, in a bed in a hospital, which by the way is not healthy for them, there's lots of seniors that once they get to the hospital, 
um, even if it's not very severe at the beginning, by the time they leave, their health has really deteriorated um, for lots of reasons. But so if you were able to take that senior out of the acute care bed in a hospital, put them back at home in their community and give them proper health support, um, home support, um, you know, that helps with their laundry and getting their groceries and all that kind of thing, then you're saving one tons of money because it's a lot cheaper for them to be in their home and healthier, but it frees up a bed in the hospital, which means that surgery can happen. So, um, and it's the same as if we had a pharmacare program, that would, people would be taking their meds, they wouldn't get sick, they wouldn't go to an ER. If we had um, a proper, well not proper, that might not be, if we had a community health care um, center model, like say in Ontario, where um, you could have access to more than just a doctor, but to other various um, practitioners, um, nurse practitioners, occupational therapists, whatever, um, social workers, and it was open longer, um, you know, then people again wouldn't go to the ER, they would go to the primary health care center and they would get the exact health they need instead of seeing a doctor who, who's so busy and, um, and has to see as many patients as possible to say, okay, here, this is the quickest way to get you out the door and hopefully feeling better. So, like for the healthcare system, it's definitely, there's lots of things that can be done within the system that wouldn't cost money globally. Like it may cost more money at the beginning, but then as you see all of the pieces um, in the long term, it would be better for everyone, people would be healthier, and uh, it would be cheaper in the long run. It's the same as, you know, we can't afford poverty. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not putting the programs in at the front end or at the upstream, and so it, there's all these costs. Right. So more like efficient sort of way yeah. of operating. Mm. Yeah. The efficacy of yeah. the whole system would increase, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while we're on this topic of kind of wait times and the way the actual healthcare system works, there is a, a Supreme Court case going on right now with Dr. Brian Day, who is a, a Vancouver physician. And uh, I was hoping that, Terry, you could continue on your train of thought here and maybe describe to us a little bit about the backstory with Dr. Brian Day, and then we can open it up and kind of speak to what it means in the big picture. Uh, so, Dr. Brian Day is actually a surgeon, and he has a private for-profit clinic called uh, Canby Surgical Center, which is right across the street from BGH. So he's an orthopedic surgeon, and um, in our healthcare legislation, if a doctor or a surgeon had, it can give you quick technical notes, so I'll just leave it very um, simple and so if a doctor is opted in to the system, they are saying that I'm going to work within the public health care system. Therefore, I am going to charge my patients what it says I can charge according to the medical services plan. Um, and, uh, but what started happening in the, well, in the 90s, um, and then uh, later on more in the early 2000s, is that waiting lists started to get longer, um, and people started to, uh, started to see doctors in these for-profit clinics. And so these surgeons started charging extra above. Um, and so the, the patient would charge, um, their fee would go to the medical services plan, um, and be covered, but then they would have to pay like a facility fee or a fee for an extra test or a number of things. And um, so this is essentially um, unlawful. And so a number of patients went and complained to the Ministry of Health and said, you are not um, following the regulations. You have to go and look at what these surgeons are doing and at this clinic and get them to stop um, extra billing and you know basically I want my money back because they shouldn't have taken it in the first place um, and so finally a group of patients um, said to the Ministry of Health if you are not going to do this we're going to take you to court to get you to do your job and so then the Ministry of Health said fine we'll audit the Canby clinic to see what's happening 
And then when Brian Day found out he was going to be audited, he said, well, this is ridiculous. I should be able to extra bill this law. People should be able to pay for their health care out of their pocket if they want. Um, like, why are you doing this? Um, don't audit me. So I'm going to file a charter challenge with the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights saying that people should have the right to pay for their health care. But one point to keep in mind is people, Canadians can pay for their health care. If a doctor or a surgeon is not opted into the system and they have a private clinic, they can function totally legally and they can charge whatever they want. They just cannot work in both systems. They can't work in the public system and the private system. Um, they have to pick and choose. And when one of the judges, like when, when, when Day's lawyer said this, one of the judges said, then why are we here? Um, Day's lawyer said, well, there isn't a business case for just having a private clinic. In other words, because of our strong public health care system, there's not enough people who would pay to totally do an operation. So for the clinics to work, they need both public money and private money. And so, um, so Day started the case. The BC Health Coalition, along with the Canadian Doctors for Medicare, we applied to become interveners in the case. Um, it's been going on for years, since 2004. And whatever happens to this case, it's going to end up at the Canadian Supreme Court. So it, could, it will affect what happens across the country, whatever the, the outcome of this case is. So that's really interesting, and thank you for providing us with all of that information. I find that most people, when I bring it up, when I bring up the topic of this court case, don't really know what the happenings are, or in fact, that there, whether there is a court case at all. Um, I want to discuss one of Brian Day's claims specifically, and that is that a side-along private healthcare system would help bring our wait times down. Is this true, and why or why, why is it not? Um, it is true in the sense that if you have money, it would shorten your wait times um, because you would be able to pay to jump um, ahead in the queue. Um, but it would lengthen the wait times in the public health care system. And, um, and this was proven true in Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's starting to show up in the UK as they um, increase more um, private uh, services. Um, so, I mean, we, of course, we don't know exactly what would happen, but, um, but it definitely um, would increase wait times for the majority of Canadians. And one of the things we always say is, a person can only be in one place at one time. So we already don't have enough nurses. Mm, right. So if we open up more for-profit clinics, where are those nurses gonna come from? And, you know, and we already don't have enough technicians for diagnostics either. So, and what um, the Health Sciences Association has found is we're really short on sonographers, and that's because there's more going to private labs. And so they need them in the hospitals, but they're not available. Mm, right. So mm. we just can't see how opening up um, for people to pay out of pocket is not going to do anything but create more inequality. A larger disparate gap. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a rather worn saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, and, and, it's, and Amy, you brought up, in, in fact, um, upstream thinking and upstream values within the healthcare profession has been, um, has been discussed here. So what are some of the healthcare initiatives that you've seen in your line of work that, that makes you excited, that makes you think things might be getting better? Um, for me, there's one that anytime I get a chance to talk about them, I do, because I just think that they're amazing. I have no affiliation whatsoever, but um, they're called Basics for Health. Mm -hmm. So there's a clinic in, I think it's the downtown east side, and they basically have somebody in the waiting room talking to the patients about their, their, circumstances, their life circumstances. 
So, you know, if you go into the clinic and the doctor says, you should be eating better, you should be taking your medication, you should be, you know, sleeping more, maybe you should be getting some exercise. If you don't have a job or you have three of them, you don't have time for exercise, you can't afford the good food. Maybe you're in substandard housing. Maybe there's tons of mold problems. So they, but in a you know 15-minute potential doctor's appointment, you don't have time to get into all of that. Like depending on what on how the doctor works, the clinic works. So they have these volunteers in in the waiting room, basically with a clipboard, being like, "Do you have housing? Do you have a job? Do you have you know, mental health issues that you need medication for? Can you afford said medication?" All of those type of things. And then the volunteers will connect those people to the social services that they need, that they are um, eligible for. Because a lot of the times when you're in, in like a terrible situation, oftentimes, you don't have time to go through all of the government websites and figure out what the heck, even if you have it at the library, if you don't have a computer, to figure out what the heck you're eligible to for, or even where do you look? I mean, I've, I've gone through those pages myself and been like, I have no clue. Shrug. <laughs> yeah, so then I'll call the 1-800 number and be on hold for two hours. And so this, this program that makes it super, like, really easy, I hope, for, for folks to know what they're eligible for and to hopefully get them to, you know, a stable level where your, your basic needs are met. Like, to me, that gives me a lot of hope. And right now it's only volunteers. So what I would love to see as part of a poverty reduction strategy would be actual funding for people to do that on a full-time basis. Uh, so this is Terry. Um, well, the, you know, I'm feeling hopeful on day two of uh, a new government uh, that has talked about um, being a government of the people and who you know will focus on a lot of these social programs i mean this isn't new stuff like we all there are public uh solutions to the issues in healthcare and um and poverty reduction and all the rest of it so it's more it's more political will um, mm -hmm. than anything so um i'm feeling hopeful that um there'll be start some changes being made. So just in that sense, I'm feeling a bit hopeful. And um, one of the things, um, one of the other things that I'm feeling very hopeful for are actually physicians themselves. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many um, doctors who really are starting to, well, maybe not starting, but really understand um, the, the, the big picture that it's not the, the individual patient, um, that there, there needs to be upstream thinking. There's a group of doctors in Toronto where they see one of their jobs is to make sure that their patients are on income assistance or disability assistance. And they actually, that's one of their questions on their form because they say and they know that if their, if the, their patients um, income increases, their health is increasing. Yep. Patients get more healthy getting income assistance than they would getting medicine. Mm. Um, and so there's starting to be a change, I think, amongst, um, well, especially general practitioners about that. Uh, so it's know. not necessarily just about your immediate physical health, it's about the bigger picture of your health and what they can do yeah. to improve it. Yeah. That is exciting. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get community health care centers. <laughs> Carissa, what are some of the um, initiatives that you see in your daily work that um, make you excited for the future? Currently? Yeah. Oh. Currently? <laughs> Don't break or, our hearts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe not currently. Maybe I don't know. Right now, like I I, I just see suffering around me, and, and it's totally unnecessary. And mm -hmm. um, so I would challenge the government to 
provide adequate childcare for all children, mm. uh, to provide free bus passes to all children. Yes. So that even mm -hmm. if you know parents are, are poor and having to pay for it, at least we have uh, taken away the expense of children. That should be a basic human right for kids to be able to get to the community centers, to get exercise, to get to school, um, all of that. There's so many barriers. I would challenge them to provide adequate housing without excessively long waiting lists. Um, because there's so much trauma and sadness that goes on while people wait. Um, there's so much damage that's done. There's so much cost to our system in the long run. There are so many children in uh, our foster care system which don't need to be there because we have not provided an adequate uh, social system and support to the families. Uh, we put the, all the money in at some point. So it's either put into the jails, the juvenile detention centers, to the emergency rooms, um, to uh, the fact that children uh, um, are not going to school and uh, need special resources at a later date because we haven't given them the basic um, early childhood start. And so that's, those are my thoughts. My, so just, my yeah, so just taking care of the basics, making sure that people have their basic needs met. Yeah. yeah. It's also when you don't make those investments, it's very short-sighted. Because we're talking, mm -hmm. you know, we're saying you need to invest, invest in these things, and it's very important for it to have a healthy society. But if we just want to talk, unfortunately, the economics of it, it's still saving a ton of money. And when people are healthy, they're more productive. They, they do better. Yeah. And they're happier because they feel fulfilled. Ellie. That would be a wonderful kind of society to um, to aspire to. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for being here and joining us and having this discussion. It was very, it was very informative, and I learned so much. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to the Talking Poverty podcast. I'm this month's co-host, Eldenese. And I'm Suzanne Merchant. Today, we chatted with Terry Hendrickson, coordinator with the BC Health Coalition, Dr. Amy Lubick, an environmental health knowledge translator, and Dr. Carissa Patricelli, a family doctor and member of First Call BC, about the impact and effects of poverty on healthcare. The Talking Poverty podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and TuneIn. If you've liked what you heard, please leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.